so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Yes, it is. Also, Brent, is there like a stuffed animal hanging down over your chair? Yeah, it's ha- I'm having a hard That's time. That's Mother Goose. Okay, can That's Mother, Mother Goose slide to, the, slide to the right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like it was no, all I, up in the camera. I'm trying to figure out if there's something else. Mother, I mean, Mother I, Goose. I have limited. Video. Yeah, I've got You're fine now. Ability. It's fine now. Okay. Like, it's actually perfect. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Hello. And Brent Leatherwood. Good afternoon, friends. And later in the show, we'll be talking to a special guest, musical artist, Sarah Groves, and we're really looking forward to that conversation. But so we can get into it, Lindsay, tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Yeah, so we have a couple of articles that I think our listeners will find interesting this week. First off, we have an article about a really serious matter. Mike McCarty shares uh, why home is not always a safe place during stay-at-home orders. Um, And he talks about the increased risk of sexual abuse during COVID-19. And Mike is actually a former police officer and domestic violence and sexual assault detective. So he has some obvious expertise in this area. He shares some statistics, how we know that one out of six American women have been the survivor of rape or attempted rape since 1998. That total number has reached an alarming 17 million American women and just as horrifying 80,000 children per year are the survivors of rape and sexual assault. And he cites these things to point us to the fact that for those at risk, a lot of this abuse comes from those they know in their own homes. So sheltering in place at home is the most dangerous place on earth for them. And as the church, we need to remember these women and children. We need to be praying for them, and we need to be taking steps to ensure that we're doing what we can. And he gives us some of those steps that we can take in this article. So next up is an interview that I got to do. Our team in D.C. actually pointed me to it and did the research. Um, And the research ended up showing this church that provided childcare for essential workers during the pandemic. So a church in Mississippi, First Baptist Church of Picayune, they saw a need and they stepped up to meet it. And they really set their comfort aside, set their convenience aside in order to be a light in their community. So um, it's a free daycare for healthcare providers. So far, they've had a total of 42 children, which is a number that fluctuates depending on the shift. Um, And they have ages ranging from one month to 13 years old. So we covered things like how are you making sure that you are in line with government restrictions? How are you making sure this is a safe place for children so that they're safe from abuse? But it's a really incredible church that I think our listeners will be interested in reading about. So what I love about this story, and A, Lindsay, it's okay to do a little humble brag at the beginning. You're, you're no, the one no. that made this happen. Mm-hmm. 
You made, no, you I made didn't. this interview happen. DC yes. team made it happen. Well, we love our DC team, but you were the actual interviewer. So props to you, Lindsay, for uh, getting it done as the queen of content for the ERLC. But what I love about this story is that First Baptist Picayune is actually being the hands and feet of Jesus in a area that there is an incredible felt need for healthcare providers And this is the kind of stuff that we as an organization have been trying to highlight for people in our public comments throughout this, that uh, churches are leading in the effort to serve their communities. And this is just a great example of that. Yeah, it really was. And this is just one example of the kind of work that churches all over the country are doing uh, to serve their communities and to step up and meet really critical needs right now. So finally, one of our colleagues, Amanda Hayes, her husband is a counselor. And so he's written a piece for us about what we should do when disagreeing with family and friends about social distancing, which I'm sure several of us have encountered. Um, We just all feel differently about the situation. So he encourages us to stay informed, to remember things that we can and can't control, and to also engage compassionately with those around us. That This is not worth uh, getting in fights with our friends and family over. So we want to maintain our Christian witness in the midst of this. And what I loved about Dane's advice in this piece is that it's really not unique to just a time of coronavirus and isolation. It's good advice for really any part uh, or any sort of time that we find ourselves in. I mean, I'm reminded of uh, times where there's been cultural disagreements or political disagreements. And as we are talking to family and friends about those things, let's just always assume the best of those that we are interacting, especially those that we consider family and friends. And that's actually great advice uh, for this moment during a pandemic. It is. And we are so glad to um, have him write that piece and be willing to do that for us. We're thankful for the Hayes family. Uh, And then I wanted to throw in another one that's not in the show notes, but is important. Josh Wester, very own Josh Wester, wrote a piece about how the church is not going to compromise on sexuality. Do you want to Tell listeners a few things about that, Josh. The real impetus behind this was this week I was looking at different things going on in the world of culture, and I saw that uh, in the UK, the Equalities Minister announced that for children who are under the age of 18, they are no longer going to be allowed in the United Kingdom uh, to pursue uh, sex reassignment surgery. So I was really like heartened by that. And then I also saw uh, some Christians who have, you know, changed their stance on the church's historic position on marriage uh, and came out and said that they've been criticized for that for for basically, uh, you know, stating their disagreement with what the church has always believed about human sexuality. And so I wrote this piece because we get that question a lot, asking, do you think that Christians will ever fully abandon this? And the answer is no, because this is a ultimately about fidelity to Jesus and to what he has said. And the scriptures are clear on matters related to human sexuality, and it is really not up to us uh, to decide. It's up to us to submit and be obedient to what Christ has said. Yep, that's a good word, Josh. It's a helpful piece, and, and it will strengthen believers and churches to remain faithful to the Lord and to His revealed Word. So, guys, that's um, what's happening on ERLC.com this week. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that moves us to our culture section for the week. So, Brent, tell us what you've been looking at in the world of culture. So, let's start uh, this week in politics as opposed to uh, coronavirus. So uh, there was a a lot of news this week uh, from the electoral side of things in the presidential political world. So Justin Amash, who is a congressman from Michigan, 
has formed an exploratory committee for a third-party presidential run. What's interesting about this is that Amash is looking at running as the Libertarian Party nominee. So to be clear, the Libertarian Party has yet to determine who their nominee is going to be, and he's throwing his hat in the ring over there. He had been a Republican in Congress. He recently uh, went independent in Congress, and that is what is kind of allowing him here to, to run as uh, a Libertarian. So what are his prospects, Brent? So it's probably really too early to tell uh, what any sort of prospects he has. But what's really interesting, though, is that by seeking the Libertarian Party nomination, the Libertarian Party has access to the ballot in all 50 states. So unlike some other third party um, candidacies, be it the Constitutionalist Party or the American Party or others, there is an opportunity here for him to appear in uh, all 50 states this November. And that that makes it a slightly more intriguing possibility. I think that's right, Brent. And for a lot of people, honestly, the Libertarian Party has sometimes been something that they were dismissive of or didn't really take seriously. And there's some good reasons for that in terms of videos that I've seen floating around even this week uh, from fast debates uh, that have happened for the Libertarian nominee or whatever. But Justin Amash is somebody who people take seriously. He's a serious uh, conservative. He's dedicated to uh you know, libertarian principles, but he, you know, it, it will be interesting to see if he's able to capture this nomination, uh, what kind of support he's able to draw out. That's right. Over on the Democratic side of the aisle in presidential politics, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden uh, created a committee to help him determine who should run as his vice presidential pick on the Democratic side. Also this week, Vice President Biden's team is dealing with allegations of a potential sexual assault that happened several decades ago when Biden was serving in office as a U.S. senator from Delaware. We all remember the last time that these sorts of allegations surfaced in national media coverage, which was during the confirmation of now U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, so over the next few weeks and possibly months, uh, there will probably be more reporting about this that we will pay attention to. Uh, if you're over on President Trump's uh, team, you're probably trying to figure out, is this something that you want to deal with in terms of the national campaign? So it's going to be very interesting. It's going to have an effect on November more than likely, and, and voters should be paying attention to it. Meanwhile, President Trump has been busy dealing with domestic affairs, and last weekend, uh, our listeners may remember, there were stories about uh, meat processing plants uh, starting to deal with the virus. In fact, several of them, be they in Kansas or Iowa or down in Alabama, have started to uh, have several workers, a substantial amount of workers, get sick with the virus. Well, President Trump issued an executive order mandating that the meat processing plants remain open. And there was some interesting back and forth late this week that a number of meat processing plant workers uh, are concerned that that executive order is compelling them to remain open during the pandemic when uh, several folks are very concerned about that. As consumers, we're all probably paying very close attention to this because that is a critical juncture in our food supply chain. Uh, so it's certainly something to be watching. Right. And we had one of our coworkers who lives in Alabama uh, near a meat plant and has uh, a friend that works there really tell us that um, they're looking at some potential shortages. Meat prices could go up. So this really is important. We've not had a disruption to our food chain supply that I've known of in my lifetime. 
Yeah, and my wife noticed uh, just yesterday that turkey prices, ground turkey prices, are now as high as ground beef prices, which is, I've never seen that. Elsewhere, gobble, domestically, gobble. what did you just say? <laughs> I gobble, said gobble, gobble, gobble. <laughs> gobble, gobble. Okay. Elsewhere, domestically, I know that this is a conversation administrators at uh, the school where my children attend is what is school going to look like when they reopen, whether that's in the next few weeks or for the fall semester. But administrators are definitely dealing with it. We're getting a lot of, of communication from our school about it. So three quarters of U.S. states have now officially closed their schools for the rest of the academic year. And while remote learning continues, there's a lot of question marks that were, are revolving around summer break and attention for a number of principals and administrators is what does next fall look like? So uh, in our show notes, we'll link to an NPR story about the various ways that school could look like, and it includes stepped-up health and hygiene measures, uh, class sizes of 12 or fewer, and some experts are recommending that basically you got to do away with the cafeteria and children just eat lunch at their desk in their classroom. It's going to be fascinating to see the toll that this takes on uh, just the educational experience for our children. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how they're going to keep classes, like most classes, size 12 or fewer. Private schools, yes, but public schools, it just doesn't seem like that's a possibility. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this is all going to play out. Yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine just to do something like that. Let's say that's the one thing of, of the nine ways that are covered in this. I, I would assume that means hiring more teachers. I just don't know where you get the class so. size unless you start doing classes in like the gymnasium. It's true. And is the budget there to hire more teachers? So we'll see. On a, on a somber note, uh, our, our fellow sister entity, uh, LifeWay, announced this week that uh, in response to just the, the economic downturn, uh, they announced in response to uh, just the economic downturn, new budget cuts and staff reductions. So from the story, it reports that in response to uh, the sudden and steep decline in revenue for LifeWay, that uh, they're going to have to do budget cuts of 25 to $30 million, which is approximately 10% of, of LifeWay's budget. And there will, unfortunately, be staff layoffs. Uh, so it is, it's a sad moment, uh, and, and I hate it for those families and those workers that are affected. And I also hate it for Ben Mandrell, who's the, the new president of LifeWay, having to make uh, such a tough call very early on in his tenure. Yeah, my, my heart goes out to Ben. I know that, I mean, he is very early in leading this uh, massive organization and to face these kinds of, of challenges just gives us a glimpse because these these are people we know and people uh, that, you know, work just down the street from us, many of them. And to, to know that what their organization is going through right now and, and that that represents the same kind of pain that's being felt in so many other areas and industries uh, across the country is just, uh, is just really, really difficult uh, to you know, to take in. And, you know, we, we were talking about LifeWay here, but last week, um, Southern Seminary, uh, our, one of our other sister entities announced that they were cutting 30% from their budget. They had to uh, lay off uh, a number of administrative staff, but they also had to uh, let go of, of nine professors, some of whom are, you know, some of these people that lost their jobs just last week are people that I'm very close with personally, have great relationships with, and my heart just breaks for these families. And, you know, we don't know where the end of this kind of fallout and this kind of, this kind of toll is is going to be. And so anyway, we want to do all we can to support our friends, to pray for them, but also uh, to, to pray that as soon as possible, we're able to begin this recovery and for things to begin to go back to whatever the new normal is. 
That's right. And hopefully, maybe uh, we're, we're kind of towards the end of this because on one positive note, another sister entity of ours at the RLC, um, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, they announced uh, on Thursday morning that classes will resume in person uh, in August uh, on their campus in, in Texas. And, and so hopefully that's a, that's a sign that, that maybe things uh, will return to some level of normalcy uh, amongst our Southern Baptist entities. But the reality is we're still dealing with coronavirus. So this week, uh, coronavirus topped um, uh, a number that we probably all knew was coming domestically in America, but over 1 million cases uh, have now been reported of coronavirus in the United States. And it's taken its toll economically. 30 million people over the last five weeks who have filed for unemployment because on Thursday it was announced an additional 3.8 million Americans have filed for unemployment. So obviously this economic downturn that we're now in uh, has affected a number of workers and their families. And my heart goes out to them. And I can't imagine what the pastor's of our local churches are dealing with as these people are now starting to reach out for their church for help and guidance and um, just ministerial advice. Uh, so Josh, I mean, you, you've worked in a local church setting. What are some of the categories pastors need to be thinking through right now? Yeah. So there is kind of this dual track of the pastors that I've been in conversations with, things we've been thinking about at our own church uh, in terms of one is just healthcare needs, trying to make sure that you're in a position where uh, if people are, you know, if, if they contract COVID or if they're in a situation where they have sustained hospital stay, that that their families or whatever kind of physical needs that arise there are able to be met by by the church and people in the church. And then the second thing is uh, the people who are experiencing the, the economic hardship that's attached to this. So maybe their health uh, is otherwise fine, but that they have now lost their jobs and they are just in need of, of basic things like making mortgage payments or making rent or being able to afford just basic necessities uh, to, to make it through this time. And so in, in any case, in almost any church, uh, there, there's going to be some way that your church is affected by this. And so my encouragement uh, to other pastors would be to do all you can. Uh, it's, it's not too late to craft a real plan uh, and strategy for care for your congregation because you're going to need one. And I know many churches have already taken that step and many of them are, are you know, well down the road in addressing uh, individual cases, but this is something that's going to be with us for a while. That's a good word, Josh. Thank you for that. Um, elsewhere, so California Governor Gavin Newsom, a, a lot of folks have have praised his uh, response uh, from the civic side in California and handling this. What's interesting is a few weeks ago, they relaxed uh, some of the recommendations that California had uh, undertaken in response to coronavirus. Well, one of those was allowing people uh, to go to the beach which, I mean, that's a normal way of life if you live in coastal California. Well, now it looks like he's going to have to claw back some of that because so many people had been uh, gathering at the beaches there. They're concerned about a new spike in cases in California. This news is probably not being received very well in the OC. <laughs> probably not. I just, I mean, being a girl who was raised right by the beach, I... Uh cannot imagine not being able to go to the beach just uh, just to be able to get away and get out of the house. So it seems like you could practice correct social distancing. So I just don't get closing all the beaches. 
Yeah, but California has 40 million people trying to get to that coastline. So that's a, <laughs> exactly. you could imagine it's a pretty crowded beaches there. <laughs> well, there true. were some pictures. It's true. There were some pictures that came out of Newport Beach, California. I mean, it looked like, you know, Broadway, Manhattan. There were so many people uh, clustered together. So um, obviously this is a move that the governor has to make. Hopefully it's just temporary because – uh, people do want to try and get outside of their homes right now. It's very true. Wasn't there a news article too? I don't remember where, so I can't even cite it. Don't even know if I'm saying it accurately, but about how the virus's transmission outside is less than when you are indoors. But all that to say, yes. people should be obeying their governor's orders. I just hope they can get to the beach soon. You're right, Lindsay. And I think uh, most everything that that I've been able to read suggests that getting outside has a lot of benefits uh, for your health. Um, on the business side of things, I thought this was interesting. A, a number of our listeners probably visit Costco to pick up things for, for their families and their homes. So on Monday, Costco is going to require that customers start wearing masks. I don't know if y'all been able to get outside. I've actually already noticed a number of people uh, have been voluntarily wearing masks, especially when they go into the, the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, most places that I've been uh, have had at least half of the folks there wearing masks. Uh, we just, our family just received a shipment of masks that we ordered from one of our coworkers there at the URLC. So if you haven't had Marie make you a mask, you should uh, get her to do that because she picks the coolest patterns and she's actually really great at it. So uh, my family will be, you know, good to go to Costco uh, now. Wow, shout yeah, out to Marie Delph. Yeah, shout out to Marie I am for the mask wearing in public. It'll make me feel a little bit better. I just don't know how it's going to function when we're in restaurants trying to converse and eat. Obviously, you move the mask to eat, but still, it seems a little weird. Well, my, my kids really like it so far, and my son thinks that he's a ninja. So there you go. Well, the life of a six-year-old. There you go. I mean, the thing I'm looking forward to are the late summer tan lines that will come from wearing a mask. That's pretty great. It's just Brent. another way to protect that valuable skin, Brent. But there you go. So that you That's don't a, have a face for radio. Always looking on the plus side, Lindsay Nicolay. Okay. This one I was excited to highlight because it involves some, some uh, friends of ours at the ERLC. So more than $400,000 has been raised so far for small churches uh, who are at risk during the coronavirus pandemic. So an initiative that seeks to financially help small and struggling churches in the wake of coronavirus has raised more than $400,000 and received over a thousand applications for funding. This is being led, it's called the Churches Helping Churches Initiative. And this is a relief fund uh, that was designed to provide $3,000 grants to churches that are at risk of closing. And we know a number of smaller and particularly rural churches they've only got a few weeks uh, cash on hand. And so it, this is a time where they're feeling the pinch. And the initiative is led by our friends at the AND campaign uh, with support from other organizations such as the uh, National Latino Evangelical Coalition, uh, the Pinkston Foundation, and Pine Tops Foundation. I think that's incredible to see them stepping up like this because the thing that I would encourage people to keep in mind is that $3,000 might not seem like a lot of money, but to some of these smaller churches, their budgets are not very large and $3,000 is the difference between them making ends meet or not or paying their, their pastor or, or their staff or not. And so uh, this is actually a pretty huge thing. And we shouldn't forget the fact that LifeWay's uh, survey results show that those smaller and rural churches are the backbone of the Southern Baptist Convention that we are privileged uh, to serve. And so we know 
uh, that this is a rough time for them. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people out there, they just think, oh, the SBC, it's, it's made up of suburban megachurches. Well, they're an important part of our convention, uh, but the, the numbers show that the vast majority of our churches are about 250 people or less, if not much smaller than that. Yeah, I mean, you think about it, there's there's 47,000 uh, roughly SBC churches, and most of those churches are not large mega churches. They're not even churches of 500 or more. Uh, they're, you know, churches around 100 or less. And so, you know, this is going to make a huge uh, difference to a lot of those churches. And if you're considering giving to something like that, just know that your money, no matter how small of a contribution, can go a long way uh, toward making a big difference. Okay, so y'all, I, I'm going to have to... Uh take back something that we've said a couple times in previous weeks, and we've probably even received uh, some criticism for it because I know there's a lot of our listeners out there that really like their cats. It was released this week that a pug, man's best friend, a dog in North Carolina, is in fact the first dog to test positive for coronavirus. So it's no longer just limited to felines. It's now going over into the canine uh, territory. And, and that is lamentable. Mm-hmm. Here's my question, Brent. What happens to suspect your dog of having coronavirus? How would I know if I was going to take my dog to the, to the vet? Does anybody know? They don't get a runny nose. How do I know if they have a sore throat? Well, I think, I just I think pugs, okay, no. <laughs> actually, I, th- I think pugs always have a runny nose. <laughs> yeah, they do always have a runny nose. <laughs> I just want to say I've got nothing for that, but but I am. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm back in uh, North Carolina right now, and I'm out running most days when the sun is shining, and I get chased by dogs every time I go. So now I have to be nervous about contracting coronavirus from the dogs that are chasing me. So thanks for that. Mother Listen, uh, the news... The news ninja, Megan, just texted me and told me that the whole family had it, so they tested the dog. But here's my other question. If tests are so valuable, why in the world did they test the dog? We're increasing testing capacity, Lindsay. That's true. That's right. Anyway. <laughs> so apparently we have some extras in North Carolina uh, that we are using on dogs. So anyways, all right. So this is this is your time out there. If you're a listener who loves cats... Go ahead and, and celebrate that they, they are no different than dogs when it comes to coronavirus. They're just different in every other way. Okay, and then finally, on kind of the lighter side, uh, so we are in the golden age of TV reruns. And so CNN had this interesting story, I thought, this week that a number of us, uh, as we are doing streaming content online or we're watching stuff on television, we're actually finding comfort in in reruns, and what they're saying is pretty soon they actually may be the only thing that we have to watch because right now there's no new content really able to be produced. Yeah, I thought about that the other day. Like, you know, imagine all of these shows that were in the middle of filming seasons, movies that were either you know about to begin or somewhere in the middle of production that had to shut down. Like, there's going to be at some point this real like lack of new content. And I know again that sounds like such a first world problem, but you know. There are literally millions of people who turn to this as a form of entertainment all the time. And so I was wondering when we're going to start to feel the effects of this delay. Well, do you all have any reruns that you've been watching? Yes. The West Wing. I watch It's always the West Wing. Always. It's my West Wing every day. It's not so That's much right. like re-watching the West Wing as it is, and I, I may have said this on the podcast, I don't know, but it's like going home. Like I don't say, I don't tell people, hey, I went home today. I just go home every day. I watch the West Wing every day. That's right. It's like it's like mammal fried okra and uh, cream potatoes. I mean, it's just good stuff. 
Oh, boy. There's no getting through to y'all. All right, and so, but the good news is it hasn't stopped everything coming out of Hollywood. So this week, a new version of Parks and Rec, a reunion, if you will, was uh, broadcast on NBC, and it featured everyone's favorite characters, including Ron Swanson, responding to the coronavirus pandemic. I, for one, uh, cannot get enough Ron Swanson in my life. You know, uh, Ron Swanson is just, well, he's just a man's man. And uh, my favorite Ron Swansonism is that the episode where he is in a restaurant and he grabs the waiter and says, son, bring me all the eggs and bacon that you have. And then before letting him walk away from the table, he says, I'm not quite sure you understood me. I didn't say bring me a lot of eggs and bacon. I said, bring me all the eggs and bacon that you have. Well, there you go. All right. Well, so that's that's kind of a roundup of the news from around the, the world. So, Lindsay, Josh, that's your look at This Week in Culture. So now we're about to talk to Sarah. So Sarah Groves is a prolific uh, songwriter. She is a musician. She writes insightful and helpful song lyrics. I would encourage you to go check out her music on Amazon.com, on Spotify, on iTunes. Um, But I think that you will benefit greatly from this look into Sarah's heart and mind as she interprets her Christian faith through the art that she produces. So Sarah, we are really grateful that you've taken the time to talk to us today, and we're really excited about this time. As we get started, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And if you could, tell us one thing that God is teaching you uh, in this season of life. Well, um, in a nutshell, I'm a singer-songwriter from St. Paul, Minnesota. My husband and I run an art community center up here called Art House North, and that would be sort of the the brief bio. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that I'm wrestling a lot with a lot of people are wanting to claim, you know, Jesus and and his sort of persona uh, that he he represents me, he represents my ideas. And I'm just really like thinking a lot about that, about what unity looks like versus sort of what does courage look like in this moment? What are the things that we're supposed to be sort of speaking clearly on? And then um, and then what did Jesus mean? You know, what what was he about? So those are the things I'm wrestling with. I I think I spent so many years on the road. I had this very broad ecumenical welcome because I was coming in through music. I wasn't coming in through teaching and doctrine, that kind of thing. And so the assumptions about me were very generous. I like this song, so you and I must think alike. And so that afforded me movement across many different denominations, a lot of different thoughts with kindness, you know? And so, um, it, this, this time has been very challenging for me as a unifier by nature. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. And, um, as I told you before we got started recording, your music has formed a lot of my high school, college, young adult years. It was this, your CDs were just the soundtrack. So conversations, I just remember turning that CD up and wearing it out, add to the beauty, the other side of something. So we are thankful to have you here. And this podcast focuses on Christians and culture. So could you tell us what you and some of those around you are paying attention to right now? Well, again, I have my foot in a lot of different worlds. And so it's, it's a very, um, the tensions are so high because people are laying claim to ideas and things to validate where they're coming from. And that's where a lot of my friends are wrestling. I, I tend to always wrestle with, with embodiment. Um, in my late 20s, I had a, a faith crisis. I had been grooming and grooming and grooming my own personal faith 
And uh, it left me very hollow and feeling, okay, to what end have I done all this grooming? And so um, my life after that point, after 28, is really marked by engagement. And the people that I I look to as exemplars are people that are really embodying Christ in very physical ways here and now, not just putting this emphasis on what happens hereafter, but what, what's happening here and now, your kingdom come, your will be done here. Um, so those are the things I wrestle with a great deal, and I, and I talk to my friends at length about and am looking for in the world, I guess. Hey, Sarah, it's so good to talk to you. So we recently had on John Anazu, and he was talking about in his new book about how Christians can live faithful, uh, respectful lives in the midst of a society of differences. And in your new book, you write uh, about the role of a songwriter uh, along these same lines. Can you explain more about that and unpack that a little bit more for our audience? And how does the art house play into this? The writer, the songwriter, um, they are called to, you know, not necessarily make sense of everything, where sometimes I think a theologian's job or someone else's job might be to sort of parse out what's this is what's happening. Um, I think the artist and the songwriter are called into the room to just testify about what they see and feel. And I think that's what we find David doing in the Psalms. Um, he just walks in and he sees something incredible and his heart fills with praise and he he overflows with worship or he walks in and says, the wicked look pretty happy to me. I wash my hands all day long. I try to keep my heart pure and all I get is a punch in the stomach, you know? So David is clearly free to kind of walk in and say, this is a mess or this feels terrible. And um, I think that's kind of what the artist is in, in the world to do. Now, I have in my life had pressure to feel, um, I say in the chapter, I don't think that good art can come from asking the question first, what is the faithful thing to say? Um, I think that will kind of close you off from what the human actual experience is. And I think Jesus really does come to enter our human experience. Um, so I think we we have to speak about what we're witnessing, what we're seeing, and and say, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> that doesn't feel great. And I think that you see artists attempting to do that. Now, I've never been an agitator by nature. I have a lot of friends that are. I have music friends and that I've been on the road with. And it's like, you love this stuff. You love stirring the pot. Um, I've never been like that. I like, I come more from maybe a maternal voice, a, a nurturer place. Let us reason together would be more my tone. So um, yeah, so I'm trying to tell the truth in my way and, um, and, do, and be faithful to that. Well, Sarah, we love getting a look into other Christians' lives and their rhythms and what their families do. So could you tell us a little bit about what role music played in your family growing up and what role it plays um, specifically in your family right now, specifically in discipling your kids? Um, so growing up, my my parents were both educators, but they were very musical and we did a lot of music as a family. Um, so we were like in the cantatas. Remember the word cantata? <laughs> <laughs> from church. Yes. Uh -huh. um, yeah. So my dad was always the soloist in the cantata and, um, and my parents were very musical. My mom wrote music. She wrote choral music and different things. So they were in my small, I grew up in a really small house. My sisters and I all shared one room. The three of us shared one room because my mom needed a dedicated space where she could play piano. So I think that afforded me the ability. It's really embarrassing to write music. It's very vulnerable to say nonsense words, you know, out, speak those things out. So having a dedicated room with a door that closed, um, my mom was able to practice. She was a, a classically trained pianist and 
Um, so that was, I think, huge. I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing today if I didn't have that door that I could close and go in there and just sing my heart out, all the things I was feeling. Um, and now my kids, um, that's an interesting question because our music our music tastes really are run a, a broad range. My son is into EDM and electronic music and he, he creates music. And it took me a while to realize that he was doing the same thing that I had been doing. Um, but just in a different medium, you know, and, uh, so he's, he's very creative and they're, um, forming their, you know, they're expressing themselves. I wrote about it in a song called signal, um, basically saying to the kids, like your signal is getting louder and I hear it. I hear your song going out and it's different than my song, but I, I like it and it's, it's unique. So, yeah. So sometimes we, we have great conversations. Uh, Kirby's just tr- tuning in kind of more to lyrics and things like that. So it's been interesting. Uh, Ruby's always been kind of in tune to music and she's very sensitive in her heart. And so we'll have long conversations about music and lyrics and things like that. And, um, she loves JJ Heller and a lot of different, you know, singer songwriter kind of writers. And so, yeah, but I can't say that we have oriented around it in any formalized kind of way. So Sarah, let's, uh, let's stay on the, the music theme. So it's always great to get music recommendations from an actual musician. So can you narrow down your your top favorite albums that are your go-tos? I am so bad at favorites, okay? I if anyone who knows me knows the word favorite just sends me because <laughs> I, <laughs> I am not a decisive person and so um right away like my life influence writers would be like Emily Salyers, Peter Gabriel are huge influences on the way I think about music and and storytelling. But uh lately I've I love Jess Ray and Taylor Leonard. I've just absolutely love what they're doing with Mission House, but their solo music as well has just been a huge huge balm to my spirit. Um, my go-to worship record is um, Fernando Ortega, Under the Shadow of Your Wings. Uh, it was a kind of a liturgical thing he wrote. Uh, it was called The Mass for the Dead. That's what he told me it was called in his own mind. I don't think he named it that, but but it was really meaningful to me. I think he wrote it after losing some fa- significant family members, and it has such a comforting I don't know. It creates a space for me that I just absolutely, it has a physical effect on, on me when I, when I put it on. And then I have lots of peers like Andy Gullihorn. I'll just, will listen to anything he writes and is putting out Crystal Wells. Um, what she's writing right now, she's gone through a very difficult season in her life and the music that she's writing about it is just absolutely breaking me open. So those are the peers that I really respect and am, am tuned into. Gosh, well, Sarah, we, we want to say thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today. We, um, you know, just hearing what you were talking about, about your role as a musician, as an artist, and sometimes not necessarily creating these straight lines of meaning, uh, but creating things that are really meaningful to people. And then hearing you talk about music from artists that you really love, like a lot of that just really, really resonates uh, with me. And I'm sure it'll resonate with a lot of other people. But uh, we're, we're just really grateful for you taking the time uh, to talk to us. And we just want to say thanks so much. Thank you guys so much. We're living in uncertain times. All of our lives have changed as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, and none of us know what the future holds. How do we begin to think through recent events and learn to cope with them? In a new book called Where is God in a Coronavirus World, Oxford professor John Lennox examines the coronavirus pandemic and shows us how the Christian worldview can help us make sense of recent events. Lennox reminds Christians that we have a sure and certain hope to cling to when everything around us changes. Go to thegoodbook.com to pre-order now.
So now it's time for the lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things that we've been talking about with one another. So Lindsay, what's on your mind this week? So my lunchroom segment this week is going to genuinely be like what the lunchroom would be like uh, if we were in the office at the ERLC. So two things. First of all, Kim Jong-un. Where is he? Is he alive, dead, sick, avoiding the coronavirus? What say you? Really, I'm looking for some feedback. Yeah, I can tell you, I I spent way too much time this weekend trying to uh, uh, track down uh, rumors on North Korea's missing dictator, and I've got no idea. I don't know if he's alive, dead. Yeah, there are none. Mm -hmm. I just very interested. Well, okay, to be serious, though, uh, the the latest reports uh, suggest that he is uh, on the eastern coast of North Korea. That's where his train, which I, I didn't know this before all this speculation started over the last couple of weekends. He takes a train all around uh, North Korea. And so it's kind of like the, the Dictator Express, apparently. And uh, it is in an eastern vacation town in, in North Korea right now. And so folks believe he is there, but we don't know what his state is uh, while he is there. Well, and talking about Kim Jong-un and North Korea gives me the opportunity to say that we have some resources out about North Korea. So we did a video. You can look that up and we've been tweeting out things about it. We have a Capital Conversations podcast episode talking about this mystery this week. And then also today we have an article out in the weekly five facts about North Korea's human rights and religious liberty violations, which ultimately is the most important thing here, the way that the citizens of North Korea have suffered under this regime. So moving to something a little more lighthearted. So while we were recording this, I was hungry, hangry, hungry. So it has me dreaming about the places that I want to go and sit down and eat when this is all over which actually we can now with uh, some masks on. So what places are y'all looking forward to going to? I am looking forward to going to Super Rica in the Gulch. Tex-Mex, so good. Not usually my style, but this place is. Yeah, I've been asked this question a bunch of times and every time I've said Mexican food. And like not just Mexican food from one place so much as Mexican food from many different places. I'm just looking forward to sitting down at the table with the chips and the salsa and the queso and just, you know... Well, go into town. Yeah. So apparently this is a trifecta because I'm also going to talk about Mexican. So yes, I want to echo your comments about Super Rica uh, in downtown Nashville being phenomenal. But the first thing that came to my mind was south of Nashville in uh, the area known as Cool Springs. There is uh, a little restaurant called Garcia's that has the absolute best fajitas, chicken fajitas. I don't know what they, like some sort of sauce that they prepare those in, but they are so awesome. My my mouth is watering just thinking about it. So if you're ever in Nashville, take I-65 South, go to the, the by the Target in Cool Springs and Garcia's is right there and you can thank me later. Hey, well, I can't wait to be done recording so I can go get some actual lunch. I do look forward to getting back to Nashville to enjoy uh, the many great, you know, Mexican restaurant delicacies that are available there. Uh, for my lunch room this week, I just wanted something I'm looking forward to that I haven't even started yet. I watched it a long time ago, but uh, there is uh, a, I think it's a mini series called The Kennedys. Uh, it's available to watch right now on Hulu. Uh, it has uh, Greg Kinnear and uh, Katie Holmes are in it, and it is 
something I watched several years ago, but it was a really fascinating look at, at the life of the Kennedy family. And um, I was talking to Lindsay about it earlier, and she said after watching it, it just it just made her feel such kind of uh, disdain and revulsion for the the way that uh, the father, uh, Joe Kennedy, is portrayed in the in the series. So I'll let you watch and see what, what your thoughts are on that. But it was, I remember it being very well done, and it's something I'm looking forward to to diving in even this week. Brett, what's on your mind? So for me, I was just thinking, we've got a wonderful partner at the RLC known as Lifeline Children's Services. And they had a, a few weeks ago uh, a post on their website, which is lifelinechild.org, about five family resources that they provide during social distancing. And a couple of them are focused especially on children. Um, so they've got something called Bridge Educational Resources that will help parents right now as they are probably wrestling with schoolwork and some of them are dealing with Zoom classrooms. And this, this I think, could be a wonderful supplement to, to help uh, with parents in that situation. There's also, they've got some coaching tips for, for parents who uh, just might need that with their children. And they've got some stuff to help establish kind of a mission-minded heart uh, in children. And so there's other things there, but I would commend this to you. We'll put it in the show notes. Lifeline does an incredible bit of, of work in the ministry field that they operate in. It's a real privilege uh, to have them as partners at the RLC. And I think it makes a lot of sense for, for folks to check them out uh, during this time. That's really good, Brent. And that brings us to our last section of the week. So Lindsay, why don't you tell us uh, what's in the inbox? Yeah. So our question today is, I'm a pastor helping families think through questions about end-of-life care. Does the ERLC have any resources on this? And the answer to that, we're glad to report, is yes. Yeah. Um, we have several resources available on this. Uh, this this question really came in this week from a pastor, but we've had several uh, conversations like this uh, with different different members of our staff talking to pastors and just church members uh, asking these questions because during, you know, during this COVID-19 pandemic, we are seeing uh, a lot of people have to deal with these kinds of difficult and sometimes unexpected or at least uh, questions that they're having to face earlier than they thought they would. So uh, two articles that I would point you to on our website, even though there are, there are many more that you can find there. Uh, there's one that the title is just Issues Analysis, End of Life, The Dying Process. And that was put together by our staff that just is an explainer type article that has a lot of helpful categories uh, to introduce you to this, to help you think through it. And then th we have an article specifically on the withdrawal of care that was written by Joe Carter. And the title is, When Can Christians Withdraw Life-Sustaining Medical Treatment? Yeah, and I also wanted to throw in one more, Josh. So we have a couple of resources by a lady named Catherine Butler. She actually has a book on this, and she is a doctor. So she has a, a lot of great things to say that will help Christians think more critically and carefully and biblically about this. And I would just throw in as a reminder as Christ followers, we are a people who understand the preciousness and value of life. And these uh, resources that we're highlighting, I think, are a helpful complement to just that understanding that comes from the Bible. And so just knowing that, that we want to be there to advocate for life from conception all the way uh, to natural death. And um, these, I think, will really help pastors and church leaders who are uh, sitting with people and just kind of processing these sorts of, of really tough questions. 
That's so good, Brent, because, you know, if you think about all of the issues that the ERLC engages on at the foundation of those issues is the concept of human dignity. We believe that all humans have dignity because they are created in the image of God. And so as we're dealing with all of these things, specifically here, talking about end-of-life care, but whether we're dealing with uh, pro-life issues generally or religious liberty or any other of the ethical situations that we're considering uh, at the base and foundation level there, uh, there is just this commitment to every human being, every human life being valuable, and the fact that every human life matters because it bears, every person bears the image of God. And so uh, for us, as we sign off now, we just want to say thank you so much for listening to the podcast every single week. If you like the podcast and you haven't yet, if you could go into your podcast app on your phone and leave us a rating or a brief review, it just helps more people discover the podcast. And we're always uh, glad to say thank you to folks. And we even have something that we'd like to send uh, to those of you who send us a screenshot of the review that you left in the app store. So you can do that by uh, just just take a screenshot and email it to info at erlc.com. And as soon as we are able to get back to our offices, we'd be glad to send you a gift just to say, thank you. But you can find all of the things, uh, links to all the stuff that we talked about today on the show notes. And for Lindsay, Brent, and myself, we just want to say thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back next week with more content.